Okay. All right, come on in, everybody. Looks like everybody's in. Have your attention. Anybody need a Bible? We have extra Bibles. If you don't have one, it'd be good to look at the scriptures for yourself while we're reading. Uh, sure, we in a basket back there. Anybody need a Bible? Yes? No? Don't be shy. It's okay. If you don't have one, we'll give it to you. All right, good. Everybody has scriptures to look at this morning in some form or another. Uh, please open to the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 4. And uh, I'm trying to be better about reminding ourselves uh, and be more comfortable in talking about uh, money uh, in that we have two forms for you to give to the Lord out of your abundance or out of what he's given you. Uh, you can do it online. Uh, if you go to our website, there is a Givelify app. Um, there's an app and there's a medium there where you can do that online. And also, if you're here and you just want to give uh, money, then there's a little box right next to the sound booth there. Um, and that's mounted on the wall. And that's what we call our tithe box. So for your tithes and your offerings to the Lord, uh, just make you aware of that. So this morning, uh, we are in Colossians chapter 4, and we will read verses 7 to 15. We left off last week at verse 6, so we'll just pick it right up where we left off. Obviously, we're nearing the end of Colossians. In case you're wondering, what are we going to do next? Well, uh, I can see another sermon from Colossians, maybe two. Uh, October 10th, Joni and I will be out of town. My son Andy will be preaching. Uh, he'll be picking up where he left off, which is taking us through a, sort of a flyover through the book of Jeremiah, an Old Testament book, which is really good to have the whole counsel of God's word, some Old Testament coming with the New Testament teaching. Um, at any rate, I will go to Philemon after Colossians. That'll probably just be a one-and-done deal because it's a, just a little short letter that Paul wrote to his friend Philemon. And after that, um, pray. It remains to be seen. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, so, Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstance, circumstances and comfort your hearts. Now, some of your Bibles may say that you may know our circumstances and he may comfort our hearts. Or uh, with, verse 9, I'm sending him with him Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, parens, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. That is Mark. 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, which means those three men that he just mentioned were Jewish. Okay, Aristarchus, Mark, and justice. They were Jewish. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in, your, in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. And by the way, if your translation says Nympha and the church in her house, the manuscript evidence is about equal. <laughs> so whether it's a man or a woman, we can't say positively. Fairly insignificant, to be honest with you. Verse 16, now when this epistle is read, I'll just finish the, the letter here. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise, likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. 
Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. Uh, it would seem to me that if Paul had uh, gone right from verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, right to verse 16, it would have been made good sense. He's just like, just kind of, here's my final exhortation to you to be diligent and vigilant in prayer. Remember to share your faith. Uh, is exhortation we got last week. In other words, let your walk match your talk. He literally said that. It's a good exhortation. If he had just gone from verse 6, eliminated everything from 7 to 15 and gone right to 16, it would have made perfect sense. That's good. But he doesn't. Instead, he takes the time to comment or make recommendation about a number of his close friends. There's 11 names specifically mentioned here. And for our study this morning, I'm going to consider eight of these people. In so doing, I'm confident you'll relate to many, if not all, in some way or another. I'll give you a brief bio and or backstory on each one. I'll try to make application for ourselves as we go. And let me just tell you, this comes strictly from my reading and studying the Word of God, the Bible. In other words, the backstory or the bio that I'm going to bring to you this morning is simply from my study of the Bible. In other words, I have various tools, as you do, and I encourage you to use them to learn how to understand what is written in the Scriptures. And with those tools, I can see every time a person's name is mentioned and the context in which it's mentioned. So observation, that's the first thing that I've done. The second thing I've done is I've tried to interpret what is Paul saying about these men, gathering the information from their backstory and from what he says about them here. That's called interpretation. And then, after thought and prayer and walking around and thinking and praying and doing everything that I do in a week and thinking and thinking and praying and praying, application starts to come, and it's really good. So that's just kind of an overview of how you study your Bible. Observation, interpretation, application. What's it say? What's it mean? What's God saying to me? Because God speaks through his word. Paul famously said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, teaching the Bible is more than just learning. <laughs> it's learning for life, right? It's there, so there's rebuke, there's correction, and there's instruction in righteousness. Let me just rephrase that for you. Basically what Paul is saying, here's something to stop doing, here's something to do better, and here's something to start doing. <laughs> and that comes from hearing the Word of God. So I trust as we go through this, it'll be very interesting actually to do little, uh, I guess, what do you say, just uh, character studies on each of these eight people. Outside of Romans chapter 16, if you're familiar with that chapter, where Paul lists the name of more than 30 people, people that he knew lived in Rome when he wrote that letter to them. Outside of that, this is the longest list of names that he gives in any of his other writings. Two of these people are his messengers, Tychicus and Onesimus. And he speaks about them in verses 7, 8, and 9. They're his messengers, men that were personally sent to deliver this letter and news of himself and of the things that were happening back in Rome in Paul's prison cell where he was writing from. Let me pause for a moment. Is anybody getting cold? <laughs> That's okay, yeah. Maybe we could just tap that Oz a little bit. The AC is running pretty good right now. Um, move it up to 71 or 2. That'd be more comfortable, I think. So, here we go. <laughs> I want you all to be able to hear the Word of God without distraction. Two of these eight people that we're going to talk about are Paul's messengers. Men that were personally sent to deliver this letter and news of himself 
and things that were happening back in Rome. Six are his greeters. <laughs> okay, so these other six guys that we'll look at, by the way, three are Gentile and three are Jew. Just a beautiful example of the representation of the Christian church, right? Jew and Gentile. Uh, six are his greeters. That is, men that sent their personal greetings. So he has two that were personally sent and six that sent their personal greetings. Okay, if you follow me here. So five of these, Tychicus and Onesimus, also were Gentile. Three are Jewish. All are men. Ladies, please do not be offended. <laughs> okay? Uh, the gospel absolutely elevates and restores the value and dignity of women <laughs> and makes it very clear that no one is superior or inferior to another, whether it's in life or in marriage or in the church. We are all equal. We have equal standing and equal place with God, equal access to him, men, women, children of any background, of any people, tribe, nation, or tongue. Revelation 7 is a beautiful display of that. Whereas people from around the globe standing before the throne of God. It is not only Americans, and it is not only men, and it is not only, it's everyone who is trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why does Paul do this? Is a question that I have before we begin. Why does he take the time to give us these lists of names? And I think quite simply to build up and to strengthen and equip this church in Colossae. You see, they have been getting intimidated and impressed and influenced by ungodly men who have brought some very strong philosophical arguments against Christianity. They've also brought this uh, combination of pseudoscience, where they would actually study the stars, slash mysticism, where they felt like they had some interaction with spirits in the spirit world. Very subjective, but they were very impressive in the statements that they would make the truth claims that they were gaining, they said, from these visions, these things that they had seen and interacted with spirits. They probably did, by the way, because the devil's all about using his angels as ministers of darkness to confuse and deceive men and to lead them away from God. So I'm not arguing and I'm not going to debate whether they literally had communication from a spirit realm. They probably did. With demonic, with demonic realm. And then there was also these deeply devout religious people who were very impressive in their uh, strict asceticism, I think is the correct word. In other words, they would fast often, they would observe certain food and uh, dietary restrictions. They were very humble and neglecting of their carnal nature. And so because of all that, these people, some of them actually had started to drift away. Uh, chapter 2, verse 20, I'll just read it to you. It says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? You see, they'd, fallen, they'd gotten caught in the trap. So in answering the question, why, Paul, do you take the time to give us this list of names? Because he wants to encourage the church so brother or sister, friend, I, I don't know where you're at this morning in your relationship with Christ and your walk as a Christian. Uh, maybe you're just considering Jesus. Uh, for you've grown up in the home, and you, in, in a Christian home, and you've heard about the Lord, and yet he has not become personally recognizable to you. Uh, I think you'll find something in all these scriptures, in these men's lives, that I think can apply to you wherever you're at. And I'll just say this, as you begin, students especially, as you begin your studies, um, I can't speak authoritatively. I've never attended Cornell, but I have uh, some close friends who have, who I've talked with at length, and they have told me that they have a very definite agenda, which is to uh, slam Christianity in various ways. 
and, and, and declare that evolution is fact and faith is stupid. So, I don't know. Maybe you're feeling the weight of that and maybe some strong arguments by scientists who are highly acclaimed and highly published have challenged you in your faith. So, Paul is writing. This whole letter has been written in not really to argue with those people that were social influencing the church, but to lift up Jesus. And he basically says, fix your attention on things above, not on things of earth. You know what you have believed. The Holy Spirit has made that known to you. You're born again of the Spirit of God. You've gone from darkness to light. You have a whole new meaning and purpose in life. And so Paul says, look, maybe your best defense is a good offense. Let's just go hard after Christ. And so he lifts him up and exalts him. The glory of Jesus Christ is the theme of this book. And so I guess if I was to title today's message, I would say the glory of Christ in Christians, <laughs> personally. So let's begin. Verse 7. Tychicus is the first person that Paul names. Um, yeah, his mom called him Tick. <laughs> I would have called him Tick if I was his dad. Little known fact, he had a twin brother named Tuck. <laughs> Whatever, I, I wanted to do that. No, all right. All right. <laughs> Tychicus. Um, again, what I'm going to do, just to remind you, I just want to give a little bit of a backstory for each one. Again, taking it from the scriptures, I'm not going to take the time to go through all the scriptures. I've digested it, and I'll try to inform ourselves as we go. But then I want to see that each person I can see actually represents something meaningful to me as a Christian. So Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. So Paul says three things about him, and he uses an adjective to describe him. A beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. Beloved brother means one who is dearly loved. And I think that Paul is saying that personally. Tychicus is a very, very dear friend of mine. But I think it also means that he's beloved and recognized in the church as a, as a loving brother. And I would say the reason for that is because this brother lived out his faith very every day. And that when the Spirit of God, we're informed in the Scriptures that the Spirit of God pours the love of God into our heart at the time of our conversion. And I suggest to you that this man was beloved by God greatly. He walked, he kept himself in the love of God. And as a result, he was loving. And as a result, he was loved. Isn't that a wonderful thing to do? He kept himself in the love of God. What's that mean? I think that it means that he constantly was aware of the abiding presence of Jesus Christ and that what Jesus had done on the cross in the gospel story wasn't only for his salvation, but was for his blessing in his life. It was to bless him in every aspect of his life. And so he just enjoyed this ongoing fellowship, and Paul would call him a beloved brother. He also says that he's a faithful minister. Minister is diakonos. It means, it basically is a word that says this is what he does. He serves. He's a faithful servant. Tychicus is a faithful servant. Do you know that Jesus said that about himself? I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And actually, when the apostles were having a big discussion, I'll call it a discussion. No, it was a, they were fighting. They were arguing among themselves. Who is the greatest? 
Like Jesus is talking about leaving, and so they're like, okay, when the king leaves, then who's going to take over? And Jesus got them all together, and he said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. And so this brother Tychicus, my brother, my friends, he is, he is a saved man. He is a beloved brother, and he's a servant, faithfully servant. It's like, this is what he does. I'm here for others. And there's so much joy when we get out of ourselves and we just concern ourselves about the welfare of other people. There's so much joy and peace in that. And then finally, he says, he's a fellow servant. And uh, minister, servant, two different words. Servant there is actually slave. He has been saved. He's serving. He's surrendered entirely to the will of God. Your will, I request, be made known to me so that I can do your will. And it doesn't mean he checks his brain at the door. Okay, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that he's engaging with God in real time. And he's a thinking, he's a thoughtful man, he's a considerate man of the circumstances and the people around him. And he's being equipped by the word of God to know how best to serve them. And he's depending on God the Spirit to inform him and to inspire him on how to accomplish his will. That's what it means. A deacon... Diakonos is what you do. A doulos, I'm using Greek now because that's what servant, the Greek word is, doulos. It's like who you're doing it for. That's the biggest difference. I came to serve, I'm doing it for the Lord. Tychicus is mentioned five times in the New Testament. You know what's interesting? He's a traveling man. In today's world, he would have a lot of award miles. This guy traveled all over the place. Paul was always sending him somewhere. He, would, he, was, he delivered the epistle to the Ephesians. He arrives here in Colossae and delivers this letter to them. Some think that he probably sent the letter to the church in Laodicea. He, at one point, it, we're told in Titus that he visited Titus on the island in Crete and he basically was like the substitute pastor. Paul's like, Titus, I need you to come be with me. I'm sending Tychicus to do some pulpit supply while you take a little uh, sabbatical. Um, he told Timothy that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. You know what that tells me about this saved, serving Slave of Jesus Christ, that he had no personal ambitions for greatness. That Paul could trust that the way he lived his life in Paul's presence was going to be consistent when he wasn't being watched by Paul, the great apostle. It tells me that he was supportive of Paul and he respected his leadership and authority, something that is so necessary in our American culture today. It's like authority. I'm my own authority, bro. <laughs> you know, we need to recognize the authority structure, the order that God has put in our, in our world. Right from governments on all the way in through to, to husbands and wives and to parenting and into our churches. We have leadership in a church. And, and leadership is good. It's a good thing. Let us respect that and pray for our leaders tells me that Tychicus was, had no personal ambitions, that he was supportive of Paul, that he was like-minded for the kingdom of God was first, and that he was dependable. So here's my takeaway from Tychicus. Tychicus represents the average Christian. This ought to be true of every one of us in this room if you were born again. A beloved brother or sister, a faithful servant, and sold out for Jesus. In other words, his agenda comes ahead of my degree. His agenda comes ahead of my interest in that other person for perhaps a lifetime together. His agenda. My will surrendered to his will. But remember, 
That's a safe thing because he's good and right and holy, which means he always does what is best. We may not agree, we may not like, but he's got a plan and he's going to reveal ultimately that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. His purposes. Tychicus represents the normal Christian life. How are you doing? Just an applicational question. How are you doing? If I was to say, hey, would you just give me a little bio on that friend of yours? What would they say about you as a brother or sister? Are you a beloved brother? Are you a gossiper? Do you cause division <laughs> in the church? Are you just like always seeking to serve one another? Does that person have... I, I question sometimes if they're even a Christian. <laughs> Ought never to be. Ought never to be. There should never be a doubt. Paul had no doubt about this man. And, and so he was constantly saying, Hey, Tychicus, I need you to go over here. Dependable. No personal ambition. As a matter of fact, when he arrives here in Colossae, it's Tychicus who stands up in front and starts telling everybody about Paul's personal well-being. Isn't that interesting? Paul didn't take the time to give us those details. He committed it to just a thing with Tychicus, talking to the church, probably some quite Q&A. Hey, you know, a hand goes up. Yeah, sure. Yep, Paul, good man. He's in prison. It's not hard. It's easy. It's not easy with stuff he's going through. God's using him. Our next uh, person that we'll discuss here is verse 9, is Onesimus. Uh, verse 9, Paul says, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, which means he's a Colossian. <laughs> All right, this is his hometown. So obviously he was with Paul in Rome and has been sent back to his hometown. And Paul calls him a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they, he and Tychicus, will make known to you all things that are happening here, the activity around here. I love that. It's like the kingdom of God advances. Paul's like, okay, I get it. You're going to put me in cuffs, throw me in jail. You know what? You can't bind the word of God. He literally said that in one of his writings. The word of God is not bound. And so I will speak to this Roman soldier who's chained to me. Sorry, bro. We're going to talk about Jesus today, right? I got a friend who I occasionally bump into, a very, very lost individual, like super time, big time. It's like, whoa. And this person has a Jewish background, and they've said to me more than once, what's the meaning of life? You're a pastor, right? Yep. What's the meaning of life? I said, all right, let me just tell you this. If we're going to have this conversation, I'm going to talk to you, Jewish person, about Jesus Christ. Are you okay with that? Just wanted to be respectful. And they said, sure. It hasn't gone so well. <laughs> Not really wanting to hear about the Lord. I'm like, eternal life is at stake. Well, what's eternal life? It seems really selfish to me to have that sort of philosophy. Let's talk philosophy. I'm like, no, nope. I'm going to talk about Jesus. He rose again, you know. How did I get there? <laughs> Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. He'll make known to you. Oh, I was telling you about how Paul, even though he's in prison, there's still ministry going on. Whether it's the Roman soldiers who are on a rotation, who are there with him in his, in his cell or his private home, or it's different people that were allowed to visit him. Jewish people in Rome would come and he'd have a conversation with them as they'd open the scriptures. All right, Onesimus. All right, I think you probably, hopefully you know about Onesimus. You've read your Bibles. All right, Onesimus, uh, his name means profitable. Did you all know that? His name means profitable or useful. And Paul made a play on words when he wrote his personal letter to Onesimus' master. Onesimus was a slave, okay? And his master was Philemon. 
And that's why we're going to study Philemon after Colossians. Philemon uh, was married, had a son, and they had a church in their home. Philemon was a Christian slave owner. That's a very weighty thing to say. I maybe wish I hadn't said it, <laughs> but he was. Um, Philemon worked for him, okay? He was a slave, and Philemon one day, he quit his job right on the spot, stole something from his master, and then ran away. Okay, so he ran away from his responsibilities that he had on his job. He showed a level of discontent. I hate my job, I hate my boss, I hate the pay or whatever it isn't, and I don't like this anymore. And so I'm going to leave. He inconvenienced his boss and everybody else that was working there. And so he runs. I just want to remind you that he didn't just run away from his boss. He ran away from God. You see, because his boss, Philemon, was a Christian and had a church in their home. And this fellow, Archippus, that Paul refers to in verse 17, we think is Philemon's son, who was the pastor of the church and that was in their home. And so not only does he work for this man, and I would suggest to you that Philemon was a very gracious man who, who himself recognized, I have a master, as Paul said in Colossians 4.1. Guess what? I'm a slave too. And my master teaches me how to be a good boss. And so I've suggested to you that he was fair and generous and good working conditions and hours and all were probably in pretty good order, it's fair to say. Philemon, the way Paul talks of him, is a decent man. So this man, Onesimus, runs away from his boss and he runs away from God. But he ran away with a guilty conscience. He ran away knowing that he had done wrong to his fellow slaves and to his boss, and he had hurt him, betrayed him. And I say all that because he ran away to Rome. And somehow or another, as only God can orchestrate, Onesimus ends up meeting Paul the Apostle. And Paul said, he is a faithful and beloved brother. So Onesimus my brothers and sisters, to me, he represents the unbeliever who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. The man or woman or child who knows enough about Jesus to be dangerous, but hasn't personally repented, confessed, poured it all out, and said, I need the application of your forgiveness to my situation that you would forgive me, God. I've learned about you from the church, from my parents. Please, forgive me, Lord. And he does. And the beauty of the gospel suddenly became Onesimus. That's who he represents in my thinking. A man who's come to faith. You know, I find it interesting, by the way, uh, Onesimus carried the letter of Philemon, his boss. He carried it back to his boss. I suggest to you, and I can't be dogmatic on this, but I suggest to you that Paul had him instructed Onesimus, when you get back to your hometown, go see your boss first, and then go to church so that when this letter has read, your personal stuff's been dealt with. I'm not going to bring all your personal stuff up into the face of everybody else, all right? So I suggest to you, Onesimus comes back to Philemon, hands him the letter, and there's restoration. Philemon just rejoices in, the, in what God has done, and, and Paul exhorts his brother Philemon, he says, receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother, and he does. 
end of slavery by the gospel. By the way, um, I was reminded, uh, I hope you don't disrespect me for saying this, but I'm going to recommend a book to you. It was written for 10-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> there might even be pictures in it. <laughs> so it's a really good read. It's called Twice Freed by Patricia St. John. Uh, you can order it on Amazon. It's just a little paperback. Uh, it's fiction, but it's based on the life and the experience of Onesimus as uh, that author, Patricia St. John, clearly has studied the word and Roman and Greek culture, and she put together a really beautiful account of his life, coming to faith and returning back home, twice freed. I recommend it to you. Okay, verse, the next fellow on the docket here is Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. That's all that he says about him. Uh, Aristarchus is mentioned four or five times in the New Testament. The first time we ever hear about him, Paul is in Ephesus, and it says this, the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Aristarchus and Gaius, who were Paul's companions in travel. In other words, Aristarchus got caught up in a mob lynching and they dragged him into the stadium there in Ephesus, which was a massive affair, and the people just started chanting, great is Diana, great is Diana, Paul's putting us crimp on our economy here because he's preaching Christ and that Diana is who's this great idol thing that everybody's coming to visit and spending a lot of money while they're visiting and so that's the first time we hear of Aristarchus he's from Thessalonica alright Paul had visited there, he came to faith turned from idols to serve the living God he attaches himself to the work of the ministry so as Paul made his way down through Europe from Thessalonica down into Greece and into uh, Corinth and then ultimately back into Ephesus, Aristarchus was with him. And he got caught up in this thing and he's dragged into the city. I cannot fathom what that must have been like, can you? To be standing there and you're the one everybody's saying, kill him. He's a Christian. Holy mackerel. This brother. The next time we hear about him is in Acts 27, verse 2. Paul's in Israel, and he gets on a ship. Acts 27 is one of the greatest, most interesting chapters. The whole thing is about Paul's voyage from Israel to Rome. <laughs> it was crazy stuff, shipwrecked, right as you know the story. So Acts 27, 2, it says, Embarking in a ship which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia... We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Thessalonian. So there he is. He's all the way with Paul, all the way back to, to Jerusalem, and he's attached himself to the ministry. And he was on board that ship and went through the typhoon or whatever you call the thing that caused him to go shipwrecked. They ran out of food for, like, what, two weeks. They threw everything overboard. This guy was an amazing guy. You know what he is to me? He's a man who counted the cost. He's a courageous man, a courageous Christian. He had a deep conviction in his heart, and he was convinced and persuaded of his ultimate destination. And he was willing to step into the fray courageously, Attaching himself to the ministry. He's a committed believer. He's a Christian who counted the cost of following Jesus. He made a good, which means he made a good and logical conclusion that to use the words of Jim Elliot, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This man sold out to serve Jesus no matter the cost. And Paul was all about rewards. I mean, I'll be honest with you. He sometimes would talk about rewards as sort of an incentivization. He's like, you know what? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to get rewarded. One of his final words that he wrote to Timothy 4, to Timothy, is like, I know that there's a crown waiting for me. 
I've been faithful. I've lived in all good conscience. And my Savior will reward me. And Aristarchus is like, hmm, I could go back into the work world and do a whole bunch of stuff. And that's all very good. <laughs> Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying he's a man who represents courageous Christianity. He's a personal walk with Christ that manifested in the way that he lived. Paul then mentions Mark, moving right along. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, it's the first time we knew that, All right? So Mark is an interesting guy, as you guys probably know. He's first mentioned in Acts chapter 12. It says that Peter got released from jail. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So there in Jerusalem, apparently Mark comes from some means, to have a large home that could accommodate a big crowd would indicate that you had some pretty good resources. So that's where Mark came from. He was there in, among the believers in Jerusalem. It was very dangerous to be a believer in Jerusalem. Like, y'all know James and John, right? James just got killed, right? Herod was like, oh, that pleased everybody. I think I'll go get Peter. <laughs> so he put Peter on skid row. Peter supernaturally gets released. He comes to the home. He's like, I got to go be where the church is. He comes back, and it's, he goes to where Mark was living. The next mention is Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch on their first missionary journey, and it says that John went with them as an assistant. And then, as you probably are aware, as they went from... Syria to Cyprus and then up north to the southern coast of Turkey, when they landed at Turkey, Mark freaked out and he ran home to Mama. I probably shouldn't have said it that way, but he went back home anyway, <laughs> okay? Uh, that really upset Paul. It's like, dude, I need somebody committed. Yeah, being a missionary is one of the hardest things that a Christian can do. Okay, we glorify it here in our Western culture. It's really super hard life to live. And Paul's encountering that Mark, like, freaks out, he leaves. Acts 15, third mention of Mark, it's uh, Paul and Barnabas again wanting to start off on a second missionary journey. They've made the round trip. They're being sent back out from their church. It says Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas, and off he went. So Mark, you with me here, church? He'd sort of, because of his desertion and the mission field, Paul's like, I'm not taking this guy with me. Now we find out that he's Barnabas' cousin which is probably why Barnabas was so adamant. It's like, no, Paul, let's bring Mark. Mark, come. Paul's like, no, he ain't going. And they just, they couldn't settle their difference, and they split. Isn't it beautiful? Paul's commending this man, Mark. It's like 10 years, 12 years have passed since that time when he deserted him on the mission field to now... Mark is with Paul, excuse me, and, and Paul says of him and Aristarchus and Justice that these guys have proved to be a comfort to me. In fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for the ministry. So brothers and sisters, I love this. Mark to me represents the believer the Christian who has failed. <laughs> You've stumbled you, through weakness or fear, insecurities, and, and you haven't been faithful. Mark represents that guy, okay? And here's the takeaway I want to just exhort ourselves with. People change, okay? Don't take that brother or sister and just peg them and put a label on them and go, yep, he's a failure. He's always a failure. I have nothing to do with Mark for as long as you live. He's a jerk. No. People change. People mature. They, they gain confidence in the Lord. My brother and sister, can you honestly say, 
I am not the same person I was two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Like, yeah, I wasn't even alive 20 years ago, so I'm not the same. <laughs> right? Can you say that? You know, it's, it's just like life. Like I'm having fellowship with some brothers this week and it's talking, you know, you know what? The book of Acts basically is like watching Sports Center. It's a highlight reel. It covers 30 years of time. But all you're getting is the, the home run, the interception. It's like, oh, that's amazing. This must be the way they lived. No, they lived every day. Christianity, sorry, it's very routine. You get up today, you go about the things you've got to go about. And there's not always goosebumps and your hair's not standing up on your neck and back of your arms and your neck, whatever. And there's just like miracles happening everywhere. No, you got to eat, you got to do business, you got all kinds of things going on. Christianity is very one step at a time. People change. There's maturity that happens. There ought to be. There ought to be. And I took some stock of this in myself. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I can honestly say I am a different man than I was just several years ago. And certainly when we came here to plant this church. How do people change? I'll tell you. Mark discovered himself. He got out there. He was like, yeah, I can do this. He gets out there. I can't do this. He discovered himself, his weaknesses, his insecurities. But you know what? A very awesome characteristic of Mark, he was teachable. Because Peter would say in 1 Peter 5.13, he says, Mark, my son. Mark, as is John Mark, the man that we're talking about. Peter would refer to, refer to him as my son. So somehow or away, Mark attached himself to Peter, and what a wise and good thing to do. Peter's like, you failed, huh? You want to talk about that? Like, uh, I heard a rooster crow once. <laughs> that was pretty embarrassing, and I discovered myself. In the process, I discovered God's grace, that he loves me, and that what he accomplished at the cross forgave that particular problem. And so you see through the Word of God, through the Word of God, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. The Word of God. As he's writing it out, as he's listening to Peter tell him about the, the, the life, the dailiness with Jesus, with the Word of God made flesh, there was a imperceptible change that happened in Mark's life and maybe became perceptible over time where he found himself more confident, more willing to step out of the boat, if you will, and, and to walk on the water because the Lord will meet me there. The Word of God and the love of Jesus and His grace working in him, it matured him and it made him useful to Paul. Mark represents the believer, and I believe we all need to hear this because we all have weaknesses, represents the believer who's failed. Don't think God's done with you. He is not done. In fact, he's taking that and he's going to make something really beautiful out of it. The next one I'll just mention is justice. Wow, this is going to go, I'm going to have to speed up here. Justice, uh, he's called Jesus, and then he, he's also called Justice. Um, I'll just tell you this. Justice represents the unknown guy. This is the only mention of this guy. We have no record of anything that he said or done. And if Paul hadn't said this, he just like would be unknown to the church forever until we all get to heaven. And we got a little stickers on. Hi, I'm Justice. <laughs> hey, I'm Scott. <laughs> What century did you come from? <laughs> right? You're feeling small, insignificant, unnoticed. You are not. <laughs> Jesus said, you know, I keep track of every bird that falls. Aren't you more valuable than a bird? Duh. 
I know you. Do you feel like your, your giftings just you don't have any? And maybe there's no usefulness for you in the church and the greater body of Christ? Paul said, that man is a personal comfort to me. Which tells me that Paul struggled with variety of things. Depression, perhaps, being one. Despair. In fact, I know he did. He wrote it. And this Jewish brother is just somebody that his presence and his faith around me strengthens me. So cheer up. <laughs> We're all small, truthfully. The next one is Epaphras. These uh, three gentlemen here are all Gentile. Epaphras, who is one of you, also a Colossian, uh, a bondservant of Christ. He greets you, says three things. He labors fervently. Uh, he has great zeal, verse 13, for those in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. These are the three cities in this valley here in, uh, in Turkey. So just real quick, uh, Epaphras, from those words, tell me that he had strong devotion, great passion, big vision, and high expectation. Okay? He labors fervently, strong devotion. I bear him witness that he has great zeal, great passion. For what? That the church would expand into the neighboring towns. He has big vision and high expectation that God desires all men to be saved. And so what does he do? He teaches us. Epaphras represents a Christian who knows the power of God in prayer and the gospel. He knows the power of God in prayer. That's what he's teaching us there. Next, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Luke represents the professional man who gives his skills for the kingdom of God, ahead of wealth, fame, comfort, and reputation. Luke is the beloved physician. By the way, what's that tell you? It tells you that God didn't heal Paul. It tells him he needs a doctor. Paul had a lot of physical consequences from the unbelievable beatings that he took and shipwrecked and everything else. But God never didn't heal him. Health and wealth is heretical. The Apostle Paul, for heaven's sakes, he needed a doctor. Praise the Lord. But Luke, to me, represents a person with a very good skill set and he uses that for the kingdom of God. And I'm just going to put a period on that statement and say to you, my brothers and sisters, wherever the Lord sends you, use that skill set down on Wall Street or in a courtroom or wherever the Lord sends you and use that to witness to other people. Be someone who brings healing to the hearts and minds and souls of people who are suffering, who are living with grief, a lot of stuff going on in the background. We're doing a little bio and background stuff on these people. You know this. You get to know people and you find out, hmm, broken home, deadbeat dad, mom alcoholic, abused, boom, got some brains, Harry at Cornell. I'm good. Getting a little fellowship. They need healing. Be a healer. Be a Luke. He represents somebody who uses his skills, his professional skills, for the kingdom of God, ahead of wealth, fame, comfort, and reputation. He also teaches me that we're to take care of our bodies. It's the only one you get. <laughs> That's profound, Pastor Scott. <laughs> Keep your body as healthy as you can. Useful as we can. Paul, again, his last letter to Timothy, he said, only Luke is with me. That makes me cry with great love for Luke, <laughs> who, by the way, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He just loved Paul. So his Jewish friends ministered to, they comforted Paul, his soul, 
Luke, I think, did as well, but also his body and his mind. We need the whole package, amen? And then finally, the last fellow that I'll mention is Demas. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Demas is mentioned three times. And as I said to you earlier, I believe that, uh, and it's just my personal conviction, that Onesimus went to see Philemon before they came and read this letter, okay, prior to this. And I'm saying that because at the end of the letter of Philemon, Paul mentions Demas, and he says, he's my fellow worker, my fellow laborer. So he speaks well of him. He labors with me in this work of the kingdom here in Rome. Here, Paul doesn't say anything about Demas. Of all the men in this list, it's the only one. He doesn't say anything about him. He just mentions his name. doesn't say like Judas or Justice that he's a comfort to me. At least we get a little bit of that from Justice. For Demas, it's just, yep, Demas says hi. Right? So in case you didn't know, uh, again, Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas, my brother and sister, (laughs) teaches me, teaches us, stay in the light with one another. Because I have a suspicion that when Paul wrote his letter to Philemon about Onesimus the slave, that that may have been done a period of time ahead of writing this letter. And it seems like there's kind of a progression, a decline, a backsliding, a downward spiral of fellow laborer to hi, to bye, I'm out, Paul. It teaches me, brothers and sisters. And let me, let me spin it this way. Not that I'm spinning stuff here. But I can tell you, we've had some amazing fellowship around our biblical manhood table where men have been brutally honest. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Not always quite as transparent as that, but that's cool. I'll tell you what, that brother, he did not leave Paul without there being some conversation. It's like, Demas, I need you, bro. We've worked together. He speaks to me that the world and its promise of pleasures are always with us. It tells me that the power of the Holy Spirit can overcome that desire to to go back into Egypt, so to speak, and to enjoy some of the sensual pleasures of life. It tells me that it hurts to abandon friends. It also tells me that you have to let your friends do things that they want to do. Paul's like, okay, if that's what you choose, bro. And so... He speaks to Timothy and he says, yeah, he's deserted me. (laughs) Demas represents the need to stay in the light with one another. (laughs) So maybe we'll just, we will actually close it right there. Um, Let me just finish by saying this. I trust that the Lord, through this bio of these eight individuals, has touched your heart somewhere, somehow. Um, And as a result, maybe you would want to talk about some things, some prayer, some counsel. Uh, My son Andy is back here. Myself, we're available. Pray with one another. Uh, Ladies, we'll get godly ladies involved (laughs) if that's more appropriate. But uh, the Lord loves you. (laughs) Be a beloved brother and sister. Let his love fill you and strengthen you, give you courage. 
save you. <laughs> Greater love is no man than this. And a man laid down his life for his friends. You're my friend. I'm going to die for you so that we can live together forever. So if you've never made that surrender, just be a good time. <laughs> It'd be a really good time. The Lord lives. He lives to bless, to save, to heal. Let's stand and pray. Lord, it, I'll be honest, it amazes me to take a list of names and have you speak to us through those names, <laughs> through these words. It just indicates that every word of God is powerful and effective. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray you'd make yourself known to anybody that doesn't know you today that there'd be this interaction, this transaction of repentance and faith, indwelling forgiveness and joy and healing, and the Spirit crying out that we're sons and daughters of God. Let that be the place today. For anybody that needs encouragement, healing, be that, be all that to us, Lord. Give us vision, passion, devotion. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you all.